You are listening to The Globalists, first broadcast on the 22nd of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. It's 1500 in Singapore, 8am in Amsterdam, 7am here in London and 2am in Washington DC. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Globalist starts now. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, more than 90,000 troops are due to take part in NATO's largest drills since the Cold War. We'll get the detail and also look at the measures the EU is taking to halt Russia's aggression. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has once again rejected the idea of a two-state solution. We'll examine the latest on conflict in the Middle East. Then we'll have a flick through the global papers with author and political journalist Terry Stiastany. Terry, what do you have for us? Well, I'll be looking at uh, how it all went wrong for Ron DeSantis as he's dropped out of the presidential race, the enormous ceremonies going on in Ayodhya in India as Narendra Modi is preparing to inaugurate the new temple, and do you know what beef flex and salty currently mean it might not be what you're used to. Longing to find out. We'll also hear more about the huge anti-far-right demonstrations in Germany and the implications for the upcoming local elections. We'll have a round-up of climate news and finally we'll join Monocle's Lillian Fawcett in Singapore as the city-state's Art Week enters full swing. As Singapore continues its push to become a key regional arts market, I've got all the latest sales figures and visitor numbers from the second edition of Art SG, Southeast Asia's biggest international art fair. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected conditions presented by Hamas to end the war and release hostages. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis ended his presidential campaign and endorsed Donald Trump just two days before the pivotal New Hampshire primary. And Russian energy company Novatek says it's been forced to suspend some operations at a huge Baltic Sea fuel export terminal due to a fire started by what Ukrainian media said was a drone attack. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, NATO has announced Operation Steadfast Defender 2024, a military exercise that will involve 90,000 personnel from all 31 NATO member states and Sweden. Although the operation, the largest since the Cold War, has been planned for some time, it comes in the wake of comments by Dutch Admiral Rob Bauer, the NATO military committee chief, who said the alliance needs to be on high alert for war and to expect the unexpected. Well, I'm joined now by James Rogers, who's author of Assignment Moscow, reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin. Uh, James, many thanks for joining us today. Uh, Bauer's not the only one talking of a widening conflict. Another voice warning that war could spread is the German Defence Minister Boris Pistorius. So how likely is it, do you think, that a war will happen between NATO and Russia? Well, I think there's a couple of things to say about this. I mean, firstly, it is interesting that, you know, <clears throat> as you rightly point out, these very senior figures are raising the prospect of this. The other interesting thing, though, Georgina, is that they are both putting 
a longer time scale on it. Uh, I note that Admiral Bauer was saying, for example, I'm not saying it's going wrong tomorrow, but we have to realise it's not a given that we're living in peace. Um, others talking about 20s, 30s, 20s, 40s, which in a way I suppose is reassuring because it's longer term, but in a way is less reassuring because it means that these senior figures so close to high level decision making do not foresee any end to the confrontation uh, between Russia and the West. Um, and I think there's an understanding that the peace that Western Europe has enjoyed, um, Europe as a whole indeed, since the end of the Cold War, uh, is no longer something that can be taken for granted as mm. Ukraine has found out the terribly tragic cost and that this is not something that is um, is going to go away. I mean, in Sweden, the civil defence minister said that there could be a war there and that the military commander in chief said all Swedes should prepare mentally for the possibility and that would include cons- conscription. But I wonder, in the event of a war, do you think that it will be along traditional lines? Will it still require boots on the ground or has war moved on or indeed will it have moved on by the time it comes? Well, I think we all probably hope it isn't going to come and there will be some way of averting it. But I think, you know, many people would never have foreseen, um, however closely they watch developments between Russia and the West, would never have foreseen the uh, the scale of, of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine of two years ago. Um, I think there's a few things to say here, because, of course, one of the things that has characterized the war in Ukraine is the... <clears throat> The use of drone technology, which has played, you know, a pivotal role uh, in the battles there. But at the same time, you know, we have seen pictures from there. We see situations from there that really are reminiscent of war in Europe uh, 100 years or more ago during the First World War. If you look at some of the pictures, you know, from the Ukrainian trenches, the only thing that marks um, these out that differs from the from the from photographs from the First World War, you see soldiers in trenches, things perhaps they've got mobile phones and they've got more up-to-date uniforms but apart from that the conditions are very very similar as indeed is the way that the lines seem to have been drawn in eastern Ukraine between that territory which Russia has occupied uh, and that which Ukraine has been able to liberate. Mm. Let's have a look at this uh, Operation Steadfast Defender. Uh, NATO has access to at least 90,000 troops it's going to take place from February to May. Can you tell us more about the exercise? Well, it, it is clearly um, being set up with, uh, you know, a possible war with Russia in mind. I mean, NATO is diplomatic enough not to have specifically named Russia in its, um, you know, in the communiques that it's issued about the exercises, but it is the largest one since 1988. Now, that, of course, a year before anybody would start to consider the Cold War began to end with the for- with the coming down of the Berlin Wall. Um, it's going to be, you know, a long, as you say, going on until May. Um, and the Russian side are in no doubt about, you know, who this is aimed at with the Deputy Foreign Minister Alexander Grushko saying over the weekend that he saw this as the irrevocable return of NATO to Cold War schemes. So it is very much exercises uh, designed to anticipate a large scale ground and indeed sea war because there'll be naval vessels involved uh, in Europe. Mm. I wonder what NATO's uh, chief area of operations will be. I, I imagine that there will, there'll be plans to defend uh, the Swarovski Gap. Uh, I wonder if you could explain why that area is so important. Well, it's a key area of, in that if this is something that if there is a war in Europe, this this area is somewhere which would be which would be targeted, and this is something where the NATO exercises are going to focus. There's also going to be a focus, um, as far as details of this have been released, on those countries which have um, borders with Ukraine, uh, and of course now <clears throat> with Finland's uh, accession to NATO and the possible uh, expected joining of Sweden will join too. As you noted in your introduction, Sweden is taking part in these exercises. 
because NATO's um, border with Russia, of course, has lengthened considerably since uh, those changes over the last 12 months. Mm. Exercises like this are hugely costly. Are we seeing NATO funding increase? Are all members pulling their financial weight? Well, this is part of the problem, I think, probably for the longer term. You may have seen the Times newspaper uh, here in the UK reported at the weekend that the UK army could be a small, could shrink by a third within the next few years. Um, you may also have seen those reports uh, that two naval ships, um, two ships in the British Navy were being mothballed, as they say, taken at least temporarily out of service because there weren't sufficient recruits for them. And there are political issues too, um, with uh, the Slovakian Prime Minister over the weekend and in effect, parroting uh, Russian lines, really, uh, and saying and threatening to block the accession of Ukraine to NATO. So there are questions over resources. And of course, there are the bigger questions over the United States future direction, uh, if there is, um, as some people expect, a change of presidency there later this year. Mm. We also know that uh, EU discussions are ongoing over plans to establish a new fund to support Ukraine militarily. I wonder what you could tell us about the European Peace Facility or the EPF. Well, this is, I mean, Europe is trying, I think it's, it's realising that it needs to, it has not perhaps made uh, as much of an impact as it has. I mean, if you look at the history of Western Europe since the end of the Second World War, it has relied very, very heavily, uh, of course, upon NATO for security, and that means relying on the United States. So I think in some ways Europe is trying to find uh, new directions, but there are these political divisions um, which persist. And, and, and so the, the, this is something I think that, that the European Union... Um, you know, as the second anniversary of the uh, of the large scale invasion of uh, Ukraine approaches, is trying to find solutions to. Mm-hmm. And of course, as you say, war may well be avoided, uh, particularly though if sanctions are effective. Now, that's a subject that's still under discussion by the EU. Uh, this would be the thirteenth round of sanctions. Uh, I mean, you talk about political divisions within the bloc. How likely is it that this can be agreed between all EU members? Well, I mean, the art of EU diplomacy is trying to get people to agree to things. I mean, as a, as a former correspondent in Brussels, you know, I was always struck by the way that, you know, as the bloc enlarged, how much more difficult it came to be to get consensus on these things. We have got these dissenting voices um, on EU policy towards Ukraine and Hungary, of course, as well, and Slovakia, as I've mentioned. Uh, and so it will be difficult. But of course, there are ways of, of doing this. You know, horse trading is often the phrase that's used in, in terms of using different political mechanisms to try to get people to agree. But I think, you know, a Bloomberg News Agency reported on Friday that the... uh that the European Union is considering a new round of sanctions against Russia um, to, as the second anniversary of the war approaches. But of course, it's far from straightforward. You know, the Russian economy has proved reasonably resilient. There are problems, of course, uh, in terms of getting Western technology as certain, you know, equipment in the energy sectors and others uh, starts to, be, to wear out or need to be replaced. But generally speaking, um, you know, Russia with its very large reserves of fuel, uh, its currency reserves that it had stockpiled before the war seems, the, the economy seems to be surviving, if not in anything like the shape that perhaps it was when trade between the West was flowing freely, uh, but, but perhaps um, better than some people who are in favour of sanctions would have hoped. James, thank you very much indeed. That's James Rogers there. And this is The Globalist. <laughs> It 
is 12.11 in Islamabad and 7.11 here in London. From the hot war in Ukraine to the next trouble spot, the Middle East. Joining me to sum up events in the region over the weekend is Middle East correspondent Greg Karlstrom. Greg, uh, many thanks for coming on the show. Uh, As we're reporting in our headlines, Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected conditions presented by Hamas to end the war and release hostages. Do we have any details of that deal? Um, And what does this mean now for the hostages? There are ongoing talks uh, brokered by both Egypt and Qatar to try and and negotiate another uh, hostage deal. This would follow on the one in November that uh, led to a week-long ceasefire in Gaza and released about half of the hostages. Uh, The new deal that's being discussed would take place in stages, probably over a period of weeks, perhaps even months. Uh, It would begin with Hamas releasing uh, one tranche of the hostages still holding, probably uh, elderly people, civilians, that sort of thing. Uh, And then in the second and third phases, releasing uh, the soldiers and the military-aged Israeli men that it is holding. And then along with that, uh, there would be a longer ceasefire in Gaza. There would be an extended release of Palestinian prisoners. So not the 300 that we saw in November, but this time probably thousands of Palestinian prisoners. Uh, And then the idea is that this lengthy pause in the fighting would lead to some sort of permanent ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. But Netanyahu is not having it. He's not. Uh, I mean, he has made clear, uh, not just over the weekend, but you know, for months now, that he is determined to press ahead with this war, uh, partly because he has political incentives to do that. I mean, uh, I was in uh, Israel last week and, and speaking with security officials there. Many of them say the war is is almost stuck right now. It's deadlocked because there is this strategic choice that needs to be made of whether or not to make a hostage deal with Hamas, whether to prioritize, in other words, the fighting against Hamas or the release of the hostages. Uh, but the prime minister uh, refuses to make that decision. As long as the war is going on, uh, he thinks that there won't be early elections and therefore he can maintain his grip on power. And so he has an incentive not to make that choice and, and to let things drift along as they are. Mm. He's also once again rejected the two-state solution and that puts him at odds with his chief backer, the United States. What's been the reaction to that and is Israel's international support melting away? I mean, the Americans are exasperated with Israel. I think that's fair to say. There was a a surreal exchange over the weekend where Netanyahu made a statement that uh, Israel will have to keep full control of everything west of the Jordan River, which uh, would obviously preclude creating a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza. After he said that, Joe Biden came out and said publicly, well, you know, I've spoken with the prime minister and I think he might be amenable to some sort of two-state solution. And he wasn't trying to rule that out. Netanyahu then contradicted him hours later and said explicitly that he's ruling out the creation of a Palestinian state. Not surprising that he would say that. He has spent decades in politics trying to prevent the emergence of a Palestinian state. He's also now uh, beholden to a far-right coalition where the idea of Palestinian statehood is anathema. So I don't think anyone is surprised that he's ruling it out. But he refuses to talk about anything uh, when it comes to post-war arrangements in Gaza, not just a diplomatic process with the Palestinians, but also just a question of who is going to control the territory Mm. after the war, who is going to even 
and not in, in military terms, but in civil terms, who's going to oversee reconstruction, who's going to take care of providing basic services. That is something the Americans desperately want Israel to answer, but it's something that uh, Netanyahu refuses to answer. Yeah. Let's turn our attention now to what was going on on the ground over the weekend. Uh, can you tell us about missile strikes in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq and Yemen on Saturday? There were a series of uh, Israeli assassinations or, or suspected Israeli assassinations, uh, both in Syria and in Lebanon and Syria, targeting uh, members of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard in Damascus, and then in Lebanon, uh, targeting a Hamas official uh, in southern Lebanon. Both of those, you know, sort of within the rules of the game, uh, as they have been over the past three and a half months, not radical escalations from what Israel has done before. Uh, But I think they add in Iran to a feeling that it and its proxies are coming under attack uh, across the region, not just these assassinations, but uh, several previous ones. Uh, And then also things like the the terror attack in Iran earlier this month that was claimed by uh, Islamic State that, that killed dozens of Iranians at a memorial. I think the Iranians are struggling to figure out how to respond to all of this right now, which is why uh, their proxies in Iraq fired a very heavy barrage of missiles at uh, a military base in Iraq that is used by both American and Iraqi troops. It injured a number of American troops on that base. Again, that sort of thing has happened before, but this was a much bigger and, and uh, better targeted barrage of rockets. And, and again, I think the Iranians are struggling to figure out how to almost restore deterrence in the region at this point. And have there been further developments in the, in the Red Sea? There have been continued back and forth. The Americans have launched now, I think, seven rounds of strikes uh, against the Houthis since uh, the first barrage about 10 days ago. And the Houthis continuing to target uh, commercial ships in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. Uh, the, the Americans, including Joe Biden, have been clear that they don't think that these strikes are deterring the Houthis from this campaign of attacks on shipping. And clearly they're not because those attacks have continued. So uh, the question now for the, the the Biden administration, for the Pentagon, is just how far do they want to go with this campaign? How long do they want to continue uh, carrying out these strikes in Yemen? How much damage are they able to do to the Houthis to degrade their capabilities to attack shipping? I don't think they have an answer to that yet. This clearly wasn't just a, a one-off round of airstrikes, but how long and how big they want it to be uh, still remains to be seen. Uh, Saudi Arabia's foreign minister expressed concern that the tensions in the Red Sea could spiral out of control in the Middle East. Where are we on the risks of regional contagion? The Saudis have a particular worry about this. I mean, before October 7th, they had been fighting a war in Yemen for almost nine years. They were desperate to get out of that war. It had turned into a quagmire for them. And so they had been negotiating a peace deal with the Houthis. There had been a ceasefire in effect uh, between Saudi Arabia between Saudi Arabia and Yemen, uh, and they were trying to negotiate an end to the war. That is on hold now. And their concern is that because they are a close Western ally, 
that the Houthis might go from attacking shipping and attacking American and British vessels uh, to attacking Saudi Arabia, which is something that they have done hundreds of times over the course of the war. So that is a very acute concern for the Saudis and for other countries in the Gulf that they might wind up dragged into this. And mm. I think that that broadly is the the concern about escalation here. It's that uh, I don't think any of the parties in the region want this to become a, an all-out regional conflict, but you have these incremental escalations here and there, and uh, eventually, whether you want them to or not, they, they turn into something that does drag in large mm. parts of the region. Uh, and we know that there's been uh, bombing in Khan Yunus this weekend. Can you tell us what else has been going on in Gaza? The war there, you know, it, it in the one sense, it continues and, and it's as intense as it was uh, a month ago or two months ago. It has shifted away from northern Gaza, where Israeli troops have uh, partly been withdrawn, and it is shifting now to Khan Yunus, and there is increasingly a focus on Rafah as well, uh, the southernmost city in Gaza, where most of the population of Gaza uh, has now been displaced. There's some talk within the Israeli army about uh, trying to send troops to seize the the Egypt-Gaza border on the Gaza side of it to take control of that border crossing so that uh, Israel would be able to control what comes in and out of Gaza. Uh, Israeli troops also still looking for tunnels, uh, tunnel entrances in Khan Yunus, still looking for uh, the Hamas leadership that they believe is holed up in those tunnels. There are some tactical successes here and there, blowing up entrances to tunnels, that sort of thing, uh, destroying military infrastructure. Uh, but none of that really translating into strategic wins, either in the sense of finding the Hamas leadership or finding the hostages. There hasn't been any progress on either of those. Greg, thank you very much indeed. That's Greg Karlstrom. Now, still to come on the programme... The resurgence of supersonic travel might sound like the revival of a long-since-shelved idea. But the pressure is on for engineers to build something much cleaner, quieter and maybe even faster than ever before. We'll hear an uplifting take on the aviation industry from Monocle's US editor, Chris Lord. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio with me, Georgina Godwin, and we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is the author and political journalist, Terry Stiasny. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, it's all gone wrong for Ron. It has, uh, yes. And, you know, looking at um, an article here in the New York Times, it's got absolutely chapter and verse on everything that went wrong with Ron DeSantis's campaign. Obviously, you know, New York Times is not likely to be a big fan of him, but when there are lines in this article saying that him 
him pulling out of the campaign just before New Hampshire is stopping a long, slow political bleed that kind of gives you an idea about, you know, how badly it was all going. I mean, this article kind of really lists just, you know, things that went wrong. So, for instance, talking about uh, DeSantis trying to appeal to white evangelical voters by kind of tacking further to the right and further to be the conservative Christian side of things. And it said, well, you know, it didn't work. He gained little with evangelicals. He lost greatly among centrist voters. Um, And then just, you know, things that were going wrong right from the beginning, like having an online campaign launch with Elon Musk, which all crashed so frequently that everybody was laughing at him and it was seen as a disaster. Problems within the campaign itself, having a chaotic campaign headquarters. And then just really, you know, not being very good at connecting Mm. with the voters. They're just saying that, you know, whenever he actually uh, met a real person, you know, he, he couldn't remember their names. He couldn't speak to people properly. He just sort of would say, if he heard someone's name, he'd go, OK. Uh, and just, you know, really saying why this was, you know, pretty generally all ran, all ran disastrous. Mm. I mean, a quick scan of the headlines would lead one to think that he wholeheartedly endorses Trump. But actually, if you read what he says, he he, he doesn't exactly, it's, it's quite qualified. He says, Trump's superior to the current incumbent, Joe Biden. I signed a pledge to support the Republican nominee. I will honour that pledge. Yes, it's very much sounding like, you know, I'll support the candidate, whoever it is, as long as it's not me. It's not, you know, Trump is... But I particularly liked uh, the end at uh, the end of this article. Uh, it's talking about, you know, how Trump has, has really triumphed here and, and Ron DeSantis has had to... having to go back to Florida. Um, and then um, Trump, this Trump's reaction, um, to, because he's constantly, obviously, mocked Ron DeSantis, you know, throughout the campaign and calling him Ron DeSanctimonious. And Mr Trump apparently said, that name is officially retired. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Let's go to India now, because uh, officially this is just the opening of a temple, but actually it's a big uh, Hindu push, isn't it? Yes. Well, this seems to, this is happening um, right at the moment as we're speaking. Uh, So this is the inauguration of the temple at Ayodhya. And, you know, I don't think I quite realised the scale of this ritual and, you know, the thousands of people who are attending the ceremonies, um, the Pran Pratishta ritual where the idol of, of Lord Ram, the god, will be um, consecrated and Narendra Modi is going to be taking part at a sort of key moment and he will take the blindfold off the eyes of the idol and sort of put uh, kajal round, around his eyes. So he's, you know, it's sort of almost a quasi-religious uh, role there. But if you look at the coverage, particularly in the Times of India, you wouldn't realise, you know, quite how controversial this has obviously been historically and, you know, this temple is built on the site of the former mosque that had been there for hundreds of years though obviously Hindus say you know it was it was their sacred site even before that but until you get a bit further down the article when it's talking about you know the ceremonies it's talking about the celebrities who are attending it's talking about all of this and then it says a comprehensive security arrangement including 10,000 CCTV cameras AI equipped drones and plain clothes police officers also as well as expert teams trained for various emergencies including chemical biological radiological and nuclear incidents mm. who are present so it's just giving you an idea that you know although this got a guest list of 7,000 people five 
500 VIPs, you know, cricketers, Bollywood stars and all of this. Um, there is, you know, serious security concerns and, you know, serious worries about this. And obviously this is something that Narendra Modi is using to, to push his own political agenda ahead of the elections. Exactly. It's it's all about a push for, for, for the BJP and, and a worrying swing to the right for India. Uh, now, talking of swinging to the right, uh, a little bit later on in the programme, we're going to uh, be speaking to Bastian Brinkmann of Süddeutsche uh, Zeitung about these huge anti-right demonstrations across Germany this weekend. But the FT has been speaking to the AFD uh, leader uh, and she wants a German EU exit referendum. Tell us more. Well, yes, this is interesting. Obviously, given all the protests that there have been, they've spoken to um, Alice Weidel, the, the leader of the AFD, the party leader of the AFD. Um, and yes, she is saying that uh, Britain can be a model for Germany, that the UK's Brexit was dead right. Um, she's saying, OK, that first she would want to reform the EU. You know, we've heard that before. But if a reform isn't possible, if we fail to rebuild the sovereignty of the member states, we should let the people decide just as Britain did. And we could have a referendum on Dexit, a German exit from the EU. Um, and as this article, this interview points out, this is a, a big taboo in Germany politically. This is something that people haven't really even considered. But if you look at a poll that they are showing here among AFD voters, there's still a minority of people who would support uh, leaving the EU, but it goes up to about um, 45 percent. So you know, of AFD voters might might consider that as an option. And also, you know, in an idea of the kinds of things that people have been protesting about, um, Vidal is talking also about returning Ukrainians, saying that once the war is over in Ukraine, then you, know, you should send people back. Essentially, that a million. Uh, people from Ukraine should should have to the people should have to return. 1.1 million U- Ukrainian refugees currently in Germany have no long term future in the country, and adding that it had been a mistake to let them draw welfare payments. Mm. And of course, part of this is concern about people who are not integrating and who are not learning the the local languages. Uh, and we've got a lovely story here about languages and how difficult they are to learn once you get into the realms of <laughs> slang. Well, yes, English particularly always you know is quite quite difficult to learn, but um, as the Times is pointing out here, saying having a beef with your fam does not mean sitting down to Sunday lunch with your relative. Some older <laughs> readers may be surprised to learn. Now, as as a parent of London teenagers, I am quite up to speed with some of this new, this new, this new slang that the young people are using. Um, so, yeah, to have a beef with someone <laughs> is to have an argument with them. Um, to be salty is not what you put on your beef. It is to be upset or a bit a bit cross and, and snippy. Um, to flex is to show off. For instance, my favourite one is the which um, is not on this list, but that I, I literally learned from from one of my children the other day is to is to glaze someone. Do you know what that means? No. No. Apparently, it's to to flatter or to butter them up. So, for instance, if you said I did well in my in my exams, so my teachers are glazing me now. Fantastic. This is this is a new thing. But um, this has been a survey which has been done, which suggests that you know it's actually making it harder to to learn English because of the slang is constantly changing. But people are, seem to be picking up some of the slang from TV series and, and Netflix series. Uh, and so this is why uh, people who are learning English as a second language are learning these these phrases more quickly than we probably are. Terry Stiesony, my bruv, that was uh, <laughs> that was absolutely uh, bare. <laughs> <laughs> now here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. 
Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected conditions presented by Hamas to end the war and release hostages that would include Israel's complete withdrawal. As Israeli planes resumed bombing Khan Yunus in the southern Gaza Strip, a senior Hamas official said the Israeli leader's refusal to end the military offensive in Gaza means there's no chance for the return of the Israeli captives. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has ended his presidential campaign on Sunday and endorsed Donald Trump just two days before the pivotal New Hampshire primary, leaving former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley as Trump's last long-shot challenger for the Republican nomination. Trump holds a double-digit lead over Haley in New Hampshire, according to polls, and his campaign hopes a second consecutive win will make his eventual nomination all but inevitable. And Russian energy company Novatek says it's been forced to suspend some operations at a huge Baltic Sea fuel export terminal due to a fire started by what Ukrainian media said was a drone attack. The Interfax Ukraine news agency said the fire was the result of a special operation carried out by Ukraine's security services. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. In 2023, global humanitarian needs totaled 63 billion euros, with only a third funded. Projections now indicate it will rise to 114 million euros by 2027. Over the past decade, conflict and climate displacement has doubled, affecting one in 74 people worldwide. Meeting these challenges requires a million new humanitarian workers. The Humanitarian Leadership Academy, the largest training platform in the sector, is launching Humanitarian Exchange, an event platform fostering a new generation of future-ready humanitarians through a global learning and information ecosystem. Dominic Courage is a humanitarian at Save the Children and Deputy Director of External Relations at the Humanitarian Leadership Academy. He spoke with Monocle's Christy O'Grady at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Christy began by asking Dominic if seeking help at a forum attended by some contributors to the global crisis felt paradoxical. It does feel like a contradiction coming all the way up here. But equally, you know, if we're really going to shift the dial on humanitarian need, we need engagement from the kinds of local humanitarians that we train. But we also need them to be connected with people in power, people with different kinds of expertise than they have all over the world. So in that sense, I've got over myself and found that this is an incredible place to come for that. I think part of the problem that we're trying to get across to people is that this is an everything problem that needs everyone's solutions. And it is in the long-term strategic interests of organisations to engage in crisis because it needs to be, and the humanity of humanitarian action needs to be in the DNA of organisations. You know, I was speaking to Christina Nicole and Nicole Stott, who are here to try and get engagement for space programmes. And they were saying that some of the difficulties in trying to get people's investment is to convince them that, yes, you can make money from this and you'll feel good doing it as well. Are you able to easily convince people that this is something that they should be investing their money in? I know you said that this is an everyone problem, but not everyone thinks in those terms. Well, actually, it's interesting that meeting Nicole and Christina was one of my, what we call Davos moments, when I was standing around a fire and 
suddenly found myself talking to an astronaut and an astronaut wrangler. What was fantastic about that conversation is the way that they could bring hope to a planetary perspective. Because one of the challenges that I see is that organisations are happy to take action within their comfort zone. But as they get into humanitarian scenarios, humanitarian dilemmas that are central to that, they find that hard. And it's vitally important that we can infuse that with hope and find ways in which they can bring their skills and money to bear in a way that really enables humanitarian action to thrive. Because in these crises, you need to find hope. And corporates need that as well. And donors need that as well. Because we can't get anywhere unless we start from that position of hope. And the momentum that we see on climate change will inevitably need to become the kind that's the same kind of societal momentum that we see on humanitarian need and inaction. You raise a good point there about climate. Millions are becoming displaced because of that. On top of that, we've also got conflicts, more and more huge conflicts happening in the world at the moment. And in turn, that's creating food scarcity. And for various complex reasons, there are more and more people, specifically children, at risk. With such limited resources, and you've always, you know, the resources are never enough. When you have more and more reasons, more and more people that need help, how do you allocate your resources? You know, does someone have to miss out that was once receiving help or does everything just get spread a little bit thinner? Well, humanitarian aid, like like everything, has a political economy to it. And we try our hardest to share resources broadly across where the need is most. And in some cases, like Ukraine, you get a huge influx of money. Sometimes it adds to the global pot, but sometimes it takes away from elsewhere. And that's a heartbreaking thing to see, that we're not in the business of comparing emergencies, but we need to be thinking globally about need and thinking about underrepresented areas. We also need to be thinking about different kinds of humanitarian action because it doesn't always all happen from the UN-led system of humanitarian action. There is an enormous amount of mutual aid. There is an an enormous amount of money transfer that happens outside of the aid system internationally. There is aid starting to become a more significant part of the global picture from Asia, from different parts of the world. And that is all part of the big umbrella of humanitarianism. And we need to find ways to embrace that and recognise that whatever the politics and economics behind it, it is all at heart about human solidarity. That was Dominic Courage speaking to Monocle's Christy O'Grady. The inaugural humanitarian exchange event will be taking place in February. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Willem Alexander and the rest of the Dutch royal family are currently exempt from paying tax. But this could be about to change as both Houses of Parliament have approved changes to the Constitution which would revoke that privilege. Well, Shenai Boztash is a British journalist based in the Netherlands and joins me now. Uh, Shenai, what does this mean in practical terms? How much income does the king receive and how much tax would he need to pay? 
Well, we're we're actually at the start of this, what would be a very long journey for this to happen. So two thirds of the lower house is in favour of this idea. It will take the change in two laws and for it to go through two houses before it would happen. So it wouldn't happen for a couple of years if it did happen. Um, uh, the king um, gets about just over a million euros. So uh, in the Netherlands, the uh, the bait, he will you'd probably end up paying 50, 40, between 40 and 50 percent on that with the with the two rates of tax. So this isn't a new debate. We know that a similar motion was submitted last year and it received a simple majority, but it fell short of the required two thirds support. Uh, So has there been a change of heart then? The popularity of the king has suffered quite a lot during coronavirus when he was seen to be quite out of step with what the rest of the country was going for, particularly when in the middle of one of the lockdowns, it emerged that he'd gone off on holiday to Greece and uh, was forced to come back and make a kind of shamefaced uh, apology video with his uh, wife, the much loved Queen Maxima, looking on with big eyes like, I told you so. (laughs) The outgoing uh, Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, previously opposed taxing the royal family salaries. But this time around, he, he too seems to have shifted on that. Well, he warned the chamber actually at the end of last week, I don't think it's a great idea to do. He said that it would be complicated, although I don't see why it would be any more complicated than taxing any other civil servant. I mean, anyone who's paid by the state is also taxed by the state. Um, And there's been a little bit of movement over the weekend by the Farmers Party. Uh, It would need the support of the Farmers Party, which has got uh, a lot of seats in the uh, Senate, the Easter camera. Um, So it's not not a done deal yet, but, but some people have pointed out, well, you could at least tax his cars with his double A uh, license plates. <laughs> I mean, what does he contribute? Uh, and is the role of the the role of the royalty in the Netherlands still relevant? The Dutch love royals, actually. There's the programme, very, very heavily watched programme here called Blue Blood, where they report on all the comings and goings of all of the European royals. I didn't know there were so many European royals before I came into contact with this programme. Um, they, they get around a lot. They do quite a lot of social type work, especially Queen Maxima is is constantly popping up, opening this or giving a speech about that. She's a highly intelligent woman who does an awful lot. Um, they have a kind of symbolic role, just as they, they do in, in the UK, all Although um, there's one group called Republique who points out that they also have a role, official role in appointing judges and have a picture of the king in the courtroom. And Republique claims that this means that a court case against the king could never be independent. And so they're running a court case, um, gone to appeal to try to uh, change this. Mm. Uh, Here in Britain, the death of Queen Elizabeth has ushered in a a new royal era. And there does seem to be some effort uh, at modernisation. Do you think that's a trend we're seeing across the royal families of Europe. Your your intense viewing of blue blood might inform this answer. <laughs> well, yes, probably. I mean, in the Netherlands specifically, it's interesting that the crown princess, who who's the heir to the throne, has said that she doesn't want to take a royal allowance until she would start royal work, although she's turned 18, so she, she would officially be entitled to it. So I think there is, there is a change. And she came out with a book uh, a couple of years ago where in which she talked about kind of mental health issues and what you do about them. I think there is there is an attempt to modernize um but it, it seems, especially when we've just had a landslide election, which is partly a protest vote for the far-right PVV, it seems quite out of tune with the rest of the nation uh, for a, a very rich family, despite the fact that they're on, on call 24 hours a day not to pay tax at all. Mm. Shanai, many thanks indeed. That's Shanai Boztash talking to us from the Netherlands. This is Monocle Radio. Now, 
it's been a turbulent start of the year for the aviation industry, particularly for Boeing. Just weeks after a mid-air blowout on Alaska Airlines led to an emergency landing and the grounding of more than 170 MAX 9 models globally, an Atlas Air 747 cargo plane made an emergency landing in Miami due to an engine fire, prompting another FAA investigation and renewed scrutiny for the plane maker. But it's not all been doom and gloom. Here's Monocle's US editor Chris Lord with a more uplifting take on the aviation landscape this year. The world's big aviation manufacturers have had a bumpy start to the year, with jets on fire in Japan and door plugs coming off over Oregon. But things might be about to take off. NASA has just unveiled the X-59, a Lockheed-built jet that can breach the sound barrier. According to engineers, it has the potential to propel commercial air travel back to the future. Its maker's mission is to reduce the boom caused by supersonic flight to the volume of a car door closing. That's certainly ambitious. But a Colorado-based startup booms supersonic, which says that its passenger jets will eventually run on sustainable aviation fuel, is also poised to start testing its own aircraft, the XB-1, in the Mojave Desert, pending approval from the authorities. Developments in supersonic travel have long been stymied by a US ban on travelling over land at such speeds. NASA is hoping to challenge these rules with its quieter jet. Concorde, which was retired in 2003, was incredibly loud and an almighty gas guzzler that pumped out copious emissions. But it cut through our skies like a dart pointed at the future. As the son of a lifelong British Airways staffer, I was fortunate enough to go aboard one in the mid-1990s, making the LHR to JFK route in three and a half hours. I can still recall the screen at the front of the cabin as it counted us up to Mach 2. There was anticipation and a sense of possibility in the air. Well, we reached Mach 2, twice the speed of sound at 50,000 feet, and we maintained that speed. Twice the speed of sound equates to about 1,350 miles an hour. Aviation needs something bold and fresh, a grand design, to get behind, which is what the old bird represented when it debuted half a century ago. This time last year, I was at Boeing's factory outside Seattle to watch the last 747 go into service. And on the sidelines, the chair of a major European airline complained about the dearth of innovation in the pipeline of many plane manufacturers. The resurgence of supersonic travel might sound like the revival of a long since shelved idea, but the pressure is on for engineers to build something much cleaner, quieter, and maybe even faster than ever before. For Monocle in Los Angeles, I'm Chris Lord. Thanks, Chris. And for more opinion and comment from our editors from around the world, do sign up to our free daily newsletter, The Monocle Minute, by heading to monocle.com forward slash minute. You're with The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Hundreds 
Hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets across towns and cities in Germany this weekend as the country enters a second week of nationwide protests against the right-wing Alternative for Germany, or AFD, party. The demonstrations were sparked by a report that two senior party members joined a November meeting in Berlin where planned mass deportation of citizens of foreign origin was discussed. Well, this comes at a critical time for the AFD party, which is riding high in opinion polls with just months to go before three major regional elections in eastern Germany, where the party's support is strongest. Well, joining me now is Bastian Brinkmann, who is a reporter at Süddeutsche Zeitung. Bastian, many thanks for coming back on the on the show. What exactly is the AFD accused of? What was that meeting all about in November? Well, one could say the meeting uh, showed the true face, and that's why people are taking to the streets at the moment. Um, the party for some years talks about what they call re-migration, and it's just what you said, mass deportation of German citizens uh, with uh, foreign roots, which is um, very, very far-right politics, and given the German history, was considered a taboo just a few years ago. Mm, mm. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us then about the backlash, uh, the, the demonstrations that have been going on. They look absolutely enormous. Yeah, I think the report that came out was a wake-up call for many Germans that they finally realized what's at stake when a far-right party is not only surging in the polls, but in the three um, state elections that you mentioned, they are the front-runners, polling at around 30%. And when you are the front-runner, you still need a coalition partner, but will there be a coalition partner or not? And otherwise, you still have a lot of power when you are first uh, in the elections in, in the local parliament then. Well, just talking about that, uh, hasn't the C- CDU got a, a firewall against coalitions with the far right? Yeah, until now, the cordon sanitaire is still intact and is still working. Of course, they are always like on the very local level, on city councils, in the rural area or in, in small towns. There have always been people that said, hello, should we vote for this or that street to go in this and that direction? And sometimes then the AFD is included in, in this kind of votes. But apart from that, where it really matters, uh, nobody is touching them until now. Of course, uh, in the Conservative Party, the CDU uh, and the CSU here in Bavaria, there are always people that think maybe we should be open to a collision like that. Look at Italy, look at other countries uh, in the West where where there are coalitions and partnerships between conservative parties and far-right parties. But until now... Uh, the party heads of the Conservative Party are not moving in this direction at all. I wonder, because the party, the party is currently under surveillance by the German domestic spy agency for its certified right-wing extremist position. That being the case, why is it allowed to contest elections? Um, given German history, the German Constitutional Court uh, has very strict rules about when um, when parties could be outlawed. Um, until now, it has been done in very, very few cases, and they are very rare um, because it's it's like a it's like a double-edged sword that you have to push through to get a to get a party um, forbidden. On the one hand, it has to be major enough, but on the other hand, it can't be major that major that they are political that they have political influence because then you have to uh, have to convince the voters to not vote for them anymore. Mm. I mean, some politicians do want the AFD ban. Others fear a backlash. Can you unpick that for us? Um, yeah, it sounds like the easy solution to to just get rid of them, just strike them from the from the election ballot, and then they're gone. Um, and maybe maybe that holds because um, 
they are certainly elements that are far right and extremist enough they are fighting against the constitution because the constitution for example protects german citizens against deportation that's pretty obvious um, and on the other hand, uh, politically, and this is more on the on the conservative center-right side, people are saying uh, we should take the concerns of citizens seriously that are pushing these people uh, to vote for the far right. It's not that the people are right-wing extremists themselves. It's more their concerns uh, how about refugee policy, for example, and we have to talk about that and handle that better and not outlaw the party. So the AFD was formed a decade ago by a group of comparatively moderate uh, anti-EU economics professors. How has it come to hold these radical ideas? How has it evolved into this very right-wing party? Yeah, it started uh, as an anti-Euro party, and with every coming crisis, they moved farther to the far right, uh, whether it was Ukraine and support of Russia, for example, they are pro-Russian, uh, whether it was COVID, uh, they were, of course, against uh, any lockdowns and said that was a plan from the government to uh, put all the citizens on the knees, uh, they were against uh, vaccines. Um, and now, um, with refugees, for example, they were also, of course, always fishing for the far-right mood, and they got stronger every year. They're playing a very long game, and so far it works out. Mm. Uh, and as you say, though, there is a lot of pushback. We've seen evidence of that uh, with hundreds of thousands of people in, on the streets. I wonder if you could briefly tell us about the civil society movement that's leading the charge against the AFD. Is it an official alliance? Um, no, it's a very wild mix. Um, so when twenty, when the AfD is in the poll at twenty percent, it's still like eighty percent of Germans that that don't vote for them. And the polls there are very clear: eighty percent of people really dislike and even outright hate the party. Um, and some of them took to the streets. You have your typical left-wing, uh, anti-far-right demonstrators, but there were also average uh, downroad families that went there and also people from the conservative parties who say uh, this is this is too much this is far right we don't want to have anything to do with it it's a very broad coalition thanks uh, very much to you bastian that was bastian brinkman a reporter at Süddeutsche zeitung you're listening to monocle radio Time for a roundup of climate news now with Monocle's contributing editor, Sheena Rossiter, who joins us from Edmonton. Uh, Sheena, many thanks for coming on the show. Let's start by talking about the multi-billion dollar ski industry in the United States. They say climate change is the biggest threat to the industry. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, I mean, this isn't really a surprise to anyone, especially with the extreme weather conditions that we've been seeing over recent years. But recently, the National Ski Area Association in the United States has released an advocacy and awareness campaign, and they have said that climate change is the number one threat to the snow sports industry. Now, in this pledge that they have as part of this campaign, they're looking at everything from regulatory and legislation standards to help car to help curb carbon emissions and looking at things like pricing carbon pollution to incentivize reductions in carbon emissions across the board that among other things this is a huge industry it's valued at 58 billion dollars a year annually according to the association and obviously snow sports are super dependent on the weather and snow and the lack of snow is really hitting the bottom line for many of these 
ski resort operators. With less snow, they then have to start making it, which is incredibly expensive, and it puts the sustainability of the industry in jeopardy. And it's important to note that it gets really hard to actually make snow if temperatures are just slightly below freezing because it's not cold enough in order to turn that water into snow. So it's, it is hitting their pockets uh, as much, which is all the more reason for them to have the incentive. Uh, so how serious then is the problem? Well, just look at some of the trends and facts and figures here. So according to the Rutgers University Global Snow Lab, between 1972 and 2020, the rate of snow in the United States did decrease by about 3,000 square kilometers, which is about the same surface area as the state of Delaware for our American friends, or it's kind of comparable. It's slightly bigger than the country of Luxembourg. And climate scientists have said that this trend is only expected to continue. And also between 1972 and 2013, the snow cover season has just become shorter by nearly two weeks in the United States. And in the future, if the United States continue to be one of the, as it is one of the world's largest greenhouse gas emitters, then the industry is going to look drastically different than it does now. But if they can control those emissions and follow the guidelines of the Paris Climate Accord, then ski seasons wouldn't look too dissimilar to how they look now. Of course, they're just going to continue to become shorter and shorter. Mm -hmm. Now, there have been some new changes in leadership in both the US and China, which could affect climate policy in those nations. Who's moving on? Yes, so both China and the United States, those are huge nations that pollute quite a bit globally. In China, they make up for about 30% of global carbon emissions, while the U.S. makes up for about 14%. And recently, the retirement of both presidential envoys for climate in China and the United States, they will be retiring. So last week, 80-year-old John Kerry announced his retirement. And at the end of COP28, back in December, 74-year-old Xi Jinping announced that his retirement is happening and he's been instrumental in shifting China's climate policy. Now, although there have been tensions between the two nations recently, it's important to mention that she and Kerry have been working together for the past 25 years, well before the 2015 Paris Agreement, which was a huge landmark landmark for climate uh, science. And it's been really essential to have those two countries working together because it's had a huge impact on climate action and the global economy as a whole. Now, in China, we do know the successor for Xi, which is Lu Zhenmin, who's a top diplomat who views climate as a vital brief. But the Biden administration has yet to indicate who will replace John Kerry. And that should get interesting because we are in an election year here in the United States. Mm. Now, there's been an uh, important news about the impacts of bottom trawling. What is bottom trawling? Yeah, so this is a fishing practice which basically involves dragging hefty nets across the ocean floor. And it's not just destructive to marine life and its habitat, but it's also a significant contributor to atmospheric carbon emissions. So how serious are the carbon emissions that are released when bottom trawling happens? So a new study was released this week and scientists have 
previously overlooked a factor in climate change, which was bottom trawling. And the study is just alarming. In the study that was conducted by Utah State University, NASA's Goddard Institute for uh, Space Studies, and the National Geographic Pristine Seas, they've revealed these starting, startling facts. So let's get into those facts. So about 55 to 60 percent of carbon dioxide is generated by bottom trawling underwater, and it eventually reaches the atmospheric uh, level within nine years. This revelation is critical as the world starts to grapple with reducing emissions from well-known sources such as fossil fuels and deforestation. But these findings are significant leap compared to previous research that we saw before. So it's basically indicating that carbon dioxide is released into the ocean and it's from this practice that is continually done. There are some areas that are going to be affected more than others. That includes the East China Sea, um, Baltic and North Seas, and the Greenland Sea. So some areas are going to be impacted quite a bit by this. And the global community is now becoming increasingly aware of this issue. And conservationists and scientists alike are calling for stricter regulation to protect marine areas from this practice, even hoping to ban it in some places for more sustainable sustainable fishing practices, really. Sheena, many thanks. That's Sheena Rossiter, who was joining us from Edmonton, Canada. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. And finally, to Singapore, where the city's 12th annual Art Week kicked off over the weekend. The event spans the island and comprises 150 separate events, including Art SG, Southeast Asia's biggest art fair, which returned to Marina Bay Sands over the weekend for its second edition. I'm joined from Singapore by Monocle's associate producer, Lillian Fawcett, who was at Art SG. Lillian, uh, hello to you. What can you tell us? Hi, Gigi. It's lovely to be with you from a lovely sunny Singapore today. Yeah, as you said, this was only the second edition of Art SG, open to massive fanfare last year, partly because it really plugged a gap in Singapore's cultural calendar. The last international art fair uh, was called Art Stage Singapore, and it ended quite abruptly in 2019. So this is a really exciting moment for the city. It brought together 114 galleries from 33 countries and territories. And we've just had a few more numbers in today from the organisers about attendance. So they've said that 45,000 people attended over the three days. So that's up a bit, but not very significantly from last year. That being said, I was also told that attendance on the fair's preview day was up 18%. And that's a really important day for when many collectors with a bit of money to spend uh, will come and and get an early, early preview of the fair. So speaking of cash, there's also been some reports in today of sales. So galleries like White Cube, they're a major international gallery, and they said they brought in £1.5 million in sales. Others were a little bit less forthcoming with how successful the fair was for them. So we can assume there was a a bit of variation in that sense. Um, But the fair does seem to have brought in more international buyers this year, which will have pleased the organisers. They were telling me how they spent the last year doing outreach, doing VIP tours across Southeast Asia and China, because, of course, this is this is still a new, a very new fair for the region. And well, a new fair uh, is only two years old. So they're still trying to get the word out and China especially 
really is where a lot of the big, the high value uh, buyers come from. So I'm sure this will all be seen as good news for the organisers, but also for the government. You know, the launch of Art SG was really seen as part of a push by Singapore to establish itself as a regional art market. You know, it's got stiff competition from Hong Kong and also from Seoul in South Korea, but it's very well placed to bring together uh, buyers from India and China, as well as Southeast Asia. It's an important business and tech hub. And this is something I spoke to Magnus Renfrew about. He's the founder of Art SG, and he was also uh, behind a lot of the most recognizable art fairs in Hong Kong as well. He said one of Singapore's key attributes in this context that is, is that it's truly neutral territory within Asia. Uh, English and Mandarin are both commonly spoken here, of course. But I think what he's also alluding to there is that some of the big political up- upheavals we've seen in Hong Kong in recent years. Um, so I asked him uh, how the pandemic and the democratic crackdown in Hong Kong have affected the art market there. Certainly the auction houses have been doubling down on their investments there through having long-term leases and so on and moving into to new new buildings and the auction market has continued to do, to do well there and galleries galleries have been opening opening up and moving into new locations and so on but but whether or not the political situation is going to impact the kind of the psychological catchment area for for Hong Kong I think it's it's too too early to tell. Uh, what else is on for Singapore Art Week, Lillian? Well, it's a, an event really across the city, as you mentioned earlier. And while Art SG has gained international headlines uh, because, you know, it's an international art fair, it's a new event, uh, the, the organisers of Art Week really want it to be about spotlighting local artists for local people. It's jointly organised by the National Arts Council, the Tourism Board and the Economic Development Board. So while the Tourism Board, obviously, they're worried about bringing uh, people from outside Singapore into the country and getting them to spend money as well, Crucially, um, I understood from my conversations uh, with the organisers that actually they want the art to resonate with local people. Obviously, Singapore is a super diverse place. It's big Chinese, Indian and Malay communities and beyond as well. So they, they really uh, made sure that diversity was well represented in the artists that uh, were on display. So some of the things that I'm interested in uh, over the next week and I'm hoping to see, I know that uh, the intersection between humans and technology is a really big theme this year, for example, at Sea Focus, which is a more Southeast Asian focused art fair. Um, There's also some interesting exhibitions going on at Tanjong Pagar Distri Park. That's a new contemporary art space that used to be a historic port. Um, And then at Gilman Barracks, there's a real buzz around an exhibition about Afro-Asian poetics. So that's exploring the affinities between African and Asian diasporas. And that's something that lots of people were talking to me about and recommending to me at Art SG. And finally, there's lots to see in the evenings as well, which I'm very excited about. So there's a festival called Light Tonight. Uh, and they are projecting huge light displays onto some of the buildings in the Civic District. Uh, they're the National Art Gallery and the National uh, Museum. And there's live music as well on, on the, in the evening. So there's lots to fill up the next week and weekend. Lillian, thank you very much indeed. And that's all we have time for today. Thanks to our producers, Isabella Jewell, Laura Kramer and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researcher, Neoma Ekwe, and our studio manager, Mariella Bevan, with uh, editing assistance from Christy O'Grady. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday in London and The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>